0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels.
1: The so-called traditional values still exist in the practice of medicine. Were they ever really there in the first place? Joining us to discuss the calling of medicine and the individual physician's roles in the professional culture is clinical neurologist, Executive Vice Chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Professor of Neurology, Harvard Medical School, and Associate Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Alan H. Roper. Alan, welcome. Thanks for coming into the studio today. Thank you for having me, Marty. I'm told I have a face for radio. (laughs) You certainly do. Well... Alan, you know, we know each other pretty well, and uh, I've known you for a long time. You're one of the uh, real icons of neurological medicine, I think medicine in general, seen as a person who really is an expert in the field. I wonder what you think about the profession of medicine. Do you think there still is a professional culture here? Do you think there's something that we should uh, emulate in our elders? Oh, there certainly is. I mean, it's been eroded. I think people
0: are currently discouraged. But the virtues that have sustained practice for millennia are still here. There is a moment in time that's coming up very soon which could determine whether they'll continue through the next century or whether they will be a lost hundred years. Tell me what you think the traditional values actually are. If you strip away all the paraphernalia and all the transient glory that uh, advances in medicine, technology, biology, science contribute to health, the traditional virtues are built around the relief of suffering. Our job is to relieve suffering in individuals and thereby benefit society. Everything is driven by that. The farther one goes from that center, the less satisfying, the less valuable, and the less meaningful our jobs become. And
1: our social contract with society is fragmented if we forget it. One of the themes that we've been talking about in this program with a number of other people is the individual responsibility of a particular doctor versus the sort of societal responsibility of the doctor, making sure that things don't cost too much and systems being put in to work with each other rather than that individual patient-doctor relationship. What do you think about that as possibly eroding professionalism?
0: I don't think it necessarily erodes professionalism, but in its current idiom, it's actually in opposition to it. The idea that a system can actually provide solace and medical care is, of course, nonsense. Individuals provide care and caring. Right now, we're in the middle of a miasma of smoke about uh, things that really don't matter in the end, will come and go, will be replaced by other buzzwords and uh, politically popular notions. There should be something that transcends all that. So I think we're actually – we're in danger. I think our colleagues are discouraged. But at the end of the day, it may be that systems and individual physicians
1: are not necessarily in opposition. Well, without uh, our sounding too old, I think we can remember that some of our mentors, who we admired a great deal, actually referred to medicine as a calling, almost like the priesthood, that you were called to serve – And it seems as though our current generation of people that we're training are thinking a little bit more about themselves and a little bit less about their patients. Do you think that's true, or do you think it's just an old person's perspective on it? I think it's probably true. It's one of the
0: measurable results of a change in our own perspective on our jobs. It's reflected in large part by the specialties that graduates from medical schools choose I was at the Harvard faculty meeting yesterday at which the class was presented for graduation Mm -hmm. and the subspecialty choices were listed for the faculty to inspect and I must say it was very discouraging out of 172, 39 were going to internal medicine. After that, the most popular specialties were the ones that I certainly don't disrespect but don't seem to me to be
1: important to society at large. You think we should say what they are? <laughs> well, we can say what they are. You know, the, our colleagues know what they are. Yeah, they do. And yeah. why do you think the students are interested? In them? I mean, their rationalization is that they're interested in these fields. There's interesting science in these fields. You think that's real? No, you don't buy it. I don't. I think you have to be blunt about it. Any attempt
0: to make it into something it's not is, is I think, just a shame and a shame on the profession. So it's our jobs to figure out how to reinvigorate people and make them see that it's not about. The specialty, it's technology, and it's romance on television, like a mer- ER. Yeah. Uh, it's about one patient,
1: one doctor, one moment in time in one geographic location, and that's a very special moment. Well, one thing that you do that I've noticed in uh, your practice is you really do take personal responsibility for the patients. And the end of the day comes, your responsibility with them doesn't end. And yet it seems a lot of other people, including many of our young folks, want to work shift work, don't they? They They want to walk away from it.
0: They do. It's a little facile, though, to be too judgmental. And I've recognized that I myself am judgmental about it because the modern world has changed. And after, you know, the 60s, the 70s and a breakout from a highly hierarchical stereotype type of notion of what meaning of life means, I think it is valuable that people are looking to create personal space and professional space and combine them. It's a matter of how one's going to balance that. And it's probably the case that the current generation of graduating physicians will not recapture that calling. And it might be okay because as you and I know, it can also cannibalize you. Cannibalize you in what way? There's no end to it. Mm -hmm. There's no end for the caring physician and the sick patient. It comes out in practical ways. Should you or should you not give your cell phone number, that's a whole new inception in medicine, Mm -hmm. to your patients? Should it be an open-ended commitment to their welfare? Should a system be available either by way of a substitute physician or a group of physicians who are nameless to the patient to pick up the slack? Or can you really provide 24-7 eternal care for your patients? What's the answer to that question? I don't think it's really possible. It wasn't in the past. I don't think that our uh, forebearers were burnt out quite as much because the nature of practice was quite different. Combining the exigencies and the pressures of modern practice with that level of commitment
1: may not be practical. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me to discuss the calling of medicine And the individual physician's role in the professional culture is clinical neurologist, Executive Vice Chair, Department of Neurology, Professor of Neurology Harvard Medical School and Associate Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Alan H. Roper. Alan, let me go on to a slightly different subject, although it's related. What do you think about the paper performance push to give people uh, little tips if they do just the right thing in their workups of patients? How does that appeal to you? Well,
0: on the surface, of course, it's offensive to any kind of professional. I think it could be gauged in another way. I mean, as you well know, Marty, I'm not one to protect the system, as it were, but I think it's valid to look for ways to incentivize physicians to do certain things that as a group we've agreed are virtuous. Now, whether it's all about money and whether you can measure everything that's quality, I'm not sure. That's where, of course, we have a quibble with the econometrics of
1: what's going on currently. Yeah, do you think there are measures of quality by any methods that we currently have, or can you think of any that might be better? I have to acknowledge that I've not been ingenious enough to figure them out,
0: but I have a slightly different perspective on that It would appear, and I don't think that people in medicine would argue, that it's possible if you really know what you're doing, medically, to actually save time, which is efficiency, to save money, which is economy, and to save resources. The missing link is in commitment to really knowing what you're doing. And that kind of depth of commitment, I think, is what really was inherited from our professors, even though we have a tendency to romanticize some of them who were perhaps not the greatest human beings in the world, we recognized in them a commitment to uh, scholarship, to a lifetime of learning from experience, and to the use of that experience. And that created a degree of confidence which allowed them to function at a very high level. That aspiration, I think, is what the medical
1: education system needs to be about and has failed to do. Can the two things be intertwined? Do you think that is the education of young people, residents and students and so on, and also being very fast, efficient kind of doctor? Can you do that at the same time? I think it's probably possible to find a middle ground. You and I do it in Morning Report, showing people
0: how we manage difficult cases and not get bogged down. What's missing, though, is the knowledge base. And, of course, a novice can't be expected to encompass everything we know and to embody all the behaviors that we have and we feel comfortable, but we can help them model it after us. And those role models, to me, are the ballast of the whole system. And the way they are managed and where they sit in the current uh, medical system is not in the
1: conversation at the moment. Well, some people think that we can replace uh, what you're calling experience with decision support, as they call it. That is, take your knowledge, put it into the radiology ordering system such that anybody can basically think through the case just as you think through the case. Do I think? don't know if you're baiting me or you want me to jump across the <laughs> am Of course, the, I'm, of course yeah. I'm baiting you. <laughs> jump across the That's table That's my here. job
0: is to bait you. Yeah. Um, Well, I have to admit, we might not have the best perspective to comment on that in neurology because it's very complex. You bring in multiple streams of ideas and experience, and you have to merge them in a very interesting way. I'm not sure that we, you and I, are required to treat a strep throat. And again, I'm not derogating anybody who treats a strep throat. I think even the individuals who do would acknowledge that it's not a good use of their time. Mm -hmm. So I think that... One of the streams that flows into this at the moment is the medicalization of everything in life, which brings a certain amount of trifling suffering into the circle of what physicians are supposed to help with. That's on the psychological and the physical end. That's resulted in a need to address a large volume of unimportant medical problems that probably can be aided by computers, by non-physicians, and so on. But at the bigger end, the bigger stuff, the higher ticket items, when people really suffer, I think you need a special skill set that can't be put
1: into an algorithm. This is a tough time for a lot of doctors to practice medicine out there, and yet we have a lot of fun practicing medicine. We have a lot of fun teaching the residents, seeing the patients. What can you tell our audience? People who are listening to you today are medical professionals probably mostly in practice mostly doctors, they are slogging through those days trying to get through those dizzy, numb and tired patients. How can they improve their professional lives? Except for the select few who really function best alone, I think it's
0: very important to have a group ethos, to be among your peers, to discuss medicine as a serious pursuit, to elevate it to the level at which it deserves to be elevated among us in order to keep the flame of passion alive, and to share. I also think it's all right to step up when you see a wrong being done and try to right it, and that occurs on many levels with colleagues, medicine in general, the body politic, and the discussions that are going on about how medicine should be managed in the United States.
1: I want to thank clinical neurologist, executive vice chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and associate editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, professor of neurology, Harvard Medical School, Dr. Alan H. Roper for spending this time with us. It's great to have you here today And Inspired to Act, Alan. Thank you. It's been a bit of privilege.
0: You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels,